Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Saturday, February 6th, the Feast of St. Titus, the Companion of St. Paul. And uh, I'm speaking to you here from my my bedroom <laughs> here at the rectory in Eugene. Uh, man, it's been a full week. And uh, I'm excited to be recording this podcast again, to be speaking to you. Um, I'm going to try again to use the timer in order to keep myself uh, to a concise length for each of these segments. Because, again, we've got a lot to talk about. And, again, I have to make sure to go uh, right at an hour because I have an event coming up this morning I have to go and participate in. So, first, uh, what's been going on with me this week? Well, uh, it's <laughs> for one thing, it's been a week of a ton of travel. I've just been in and out of the parish, mostly out. Uh, other places around the diocese. And it's funny how this seems to happen sometimes. You know, they say it never rains, but it, it pours. And <laughs> it so it seems like sometimes there'll just come a week where there's so many activities scattered all over the place. And I just spent a ton of time on the road. And this week was one of those weeks. I figured it out last night because I had to submit my mileage. And it was more than 460 miles uh, this week alone, just in the last three days or so. But uh, a lot of good, a lot of good things. Um, we had a training up in Portland on Wednesday night at the cathedral uh, because the seminarians on pastoral year, myself and my brothers, are uh, assigned to serve as the archbishop's MC or master of, masters of ceremonies for the various confirmation masses. So you know, um, around this time of year, well, there's a, a few this month, you know, before Lent, and then a, a lot after Lent. Uh, beginning in April and going all the way through May or June of confirmation masses. All the parishes, not every parish, some will combine, but most of the parishes all over the archdiocese will host these confirmation masses. And you know the bishop typically will come because the bishop is the ordinary minister of the sacrament of confirmation. So the bishop will have to come and he confirms the young people uh, who are of age and who've prepared, you know, to receive this, this sacrament. So we had the very first confirmation mass last night, actually, the first of the season. And I was the MC. So we had our training Wednesday. And then yesterday, Friday, uh, I drove up to Newburgh, St. Peter's Parish, for a very, a very lovely confirmation mass. They had about 13 young people who were all confirmed. It's a beautiful mass. And I told the Archbishop, I don't think I've been to a confirmation mass since I myself was confirmed <laughs> about 10 years ago now by the grace of God. So it was wonderful. It all went very smoothly. There was a good team of, of young altar servers and uh, it was a great experience. And I'm looking forward to uh, serving as MC for some more of these masses later on in the season in April and May. And it was lovely just to be there at that, at that parish. I've never visited Newburgh before, but uh, great pastor, Father Martin, and uh, Deacon Jose, and uh, they had wonderful music, and things things were very well done. It was a pleasant surprise. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get when you go into an unfamiliar parish, uh, but uh, everything went very smoothly. Thanks be to God. Also this week, on, so on Thursday, in between the MC training and the Confirmation Mass, um, I assisted at a vocations panel at Immaculate Conception Parish in Staten which is uh, kind of not far from Mount Angel. It's sort of between Portland and Eugene and a little bit over t to the east. And uh, I think I mentioned this on the last podcast too. 
the pastor in, in Staten had let us know he was holding this vocations event. Because, you know, also, um, this last week was Catholic Schools Week. And the Catholic schools of the diocese all seemed to decide, whether independently or together, I don't know, <laughs> that they wanted to hold vocations events this last week. And there were uh, a lot of requests for seminarians to speak and, and priests and religious also to share their vocation stories. Um, we had our own vocations day here at Bishop O'Hara School on Tuesday, which Father Ron and I participated in. And... Uh, at a great time, we shared our stories, and it was it was on a Zoom call with the whole school, and then uh, the kids, you know, would would put up their hands virtually on the Zoom and ask all kinds of amazing questions. <laughs> they always, they, at that age, they always seem to want to know what people's favorite things are, and the the questions they would ask were so funny. Like, what's your favorite commandment? <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, but uh, at, at Staten on Thursday. This, this was an in-person event in the church, and uh, it was only for grades 6 through 8. And so they were all there. They were spaced out throughout the church. And myself and then three priests of that area, of that vicariate, were all there. And we all kind of gave our vocation stories and then answered some questions uh, for about an hour. So that was a lot of fun. I was glad I was able to do it. So, um yeah, I just kind of dropped in there on my way back from Portland, and then the next day headed north again for this confirmation. So it's just been kind of a wild week. Um, a lot of activity, a, a lot of good things, though. A lot of very good things. And here in the parish, um, you know, things are just kind of getting rolling in terms of these new projects I'm doing. There's just there's just incremental progress, but things are about to really ramp up. This next week, I will actually start teaching. Uh, so on, on Wednesday of, the, of this coming week, uh, I'll begin with my first lesson for the 7th graders. And there's three 7th grade classes, three 7th grade religion classes. So there's the A, the B, and the C class, <laughs> which is not, to say, is not related to their grades, although uh, it seems like maybe they could have thought of a better way to distinguish the classes, but anyway. So I will start teaching the A class on Wednesday, and then uh, the following week I'll be with the B class, the C class I'll never get to see because they that class is held on Mondays, which is my day away from the parish. But we figured out a way to do it where when I teach the A class, we'll record it. And then, um, and then the teacher will show that video to the C class on the following Monday and kind of get their questions and have a discussion with them. And then... Uh, then I'll be able to answer their questions. So I'll kind of engage with them, but it won't really be, you know, in person, it won't be to the same degree as the other two classes. Um, so, but that was kind of our, our workaround. So I'll at least be able to interact with all three groups. So I'm looking forward to it a lot. I'm getting excited. And uh, the first lesson will be on the parable of the sower, which was, it was so providential. We heard this last night at the confirmation mass. This was the gospel they picked out at, at St. Peter's Parish for the Confirmation Mass. It's the parable of the sower who goes out to sow the seed, and, you know, some of the seed lands on rocky ground, and some lands among thorns, and some the birds come and eat it up. And then Jesus, it goes on to explain the meaning of the parable. It's a really great, I think, parable to start with, um, to start this series of lessons on the parables, because Jesus himself explains 
sort of the method, the hermeneutic for how to interpret his, his parables, right? He, he explains it for us. So he, he's training us, teaching us how to understand the parables in general by explaining this one parable to us. So I'm looking forward to unlocking that, exploring it with the seventh graders. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, you can say a prayer for me Wednesday at 11.40 a.m. <laughs> if you think of it. And uh, I'll be sure to let you know next week how it all went. But uh, yeah, later on today and uh, at the beginning of this next week, I'll really be working on the lesson plan and preparing some more for that. And then today, so this event I have coming up in an hour actually is um, there's a, a Catholic young adults conference called SEEK, which takes place normally every year about this time, usually an in-person event, huge event. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of people. This year, it's, uh, it's all online, but the organizers of the event are encouraging people in different areas, especially universities, to form small groups. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be streaming conferences and talks and discussions and things. But the idea is you can observe them from your small group and you can also discuss with the people who are there with you and kind of, so in, in that way to foster a little bit of a community. And here at University of Oregon in Eugene, there's a Catholic Newman Center on campus, which is a you know student campus ministry, and they've organized. They've done a really great job organizing some wonderful events around Seek, which is taking place this weekend. And so this morning, the Archbishop is coming down to say Mass for them, and I'm going to be the MC for that Mass, <laughs> and then uh, we're going to have a, a lunch and I think a Q&A session with some students and. Uh, another vocations panel. <laughs> like I said, this is the week for vocation stuff. Um, so yeah, so that'll be great. So anyway, that's coming up in, in about an hour and a half and uh, it'll last for the majority of the day into the afternoon. And then this evening, I'll have a little time to prepare tomorrow's lesson for the RCIA. I haven't even looked at the readings yet for tomorrow, but the Lord I'm sure will inspire something uh, I'm sure he will he will let me know what he wants to say to these candidates for the RCIA. So a lot of good stuff going on. Uh, still working to connect with the chaplain and the pastoral care team over at the hospital to start my regular weekly ministry over there. That's kind of still in progress, uh, but a lot of other things getting rolling. Oh, I should mention also our parish vocations team. We're going to have our first meeting coming up on Tuesday this, this next week. So continue praying for that. I'm really excited to meet with them and start brainstorming and, you know, coming up with a vision for what we're going to do in the, in the weeks and months to come. Um, yeah, this last week, I think I mentioned to you, so the last podcast I recorded on Friday because I said on Saturday we were going to have our, our big vocations event <laughs> for the parish, St. Mary's Parish, which is this Melchizedek project I've been working on. And, uh, it was quite a disappointment, actually, on this last Saturday because we were all set up for the events and no one came. There was no one who showed up. Um, but uh, so, so, so that was a disappointment. But we're going ahead with it, and really, it was it was galvanizing in some ways because uh, it forced me to come up really with a with a concrete, actionable plan for promoting this, and you know. I decided, I mean, if no one shows any interest, 
this month, we're not going to do it. And I also decided, I came up with a really clear way to get people to register. So we have to have people registering. If we don't have people registered a week before the event, we'll cancel it. Um, so they've got a couple weeks still to sign up. But um, yeah, so, so it forced me to kind of come up with this plan for promoting it. And I created a website and I created social media accounts and kind of did things a little bit more professionally. And I've got a week by week set of to-do lists, you know, to continually um, push messages out there and invite people. And I'm going to try to give a little a little uh, fervorino after all the masses uh, probably next weekend to encourage people to come. And I, I've sent it out to all the other parishes and pastors in the Eugene area. And, you know, so things like that. We're, we're getting the word out there. And I've also got a few guys in mind who I'm going to personally invite. So I'm putting in, all that to say, I'm putting in the work and I've got a plan in place to promote it. And pray God people will sign up uh, and want to come. And if so, then this, at the end of this month, uh, the last Saturday of February, we'll actually start the project. This will be session one. Um, but if not, you know, then uh, that's fine. It just shows that this is not what the Lord is willing for right now. And I'm so blessed to have such good people uh, on the team <laughs> here in the parish. Uh, on Saturday morning, there's one lady, a consecrated uh, woman here at St. Mary's, who's part of the team. She was helping to prepare the day. And I was discouraged and kind of angry that no one was there. And uh, she said to me, and God bless her for her boldness. She said to me, Matthew, you need to remember this is God's project, not yours. <laughs> Which is so true. So true. And uh, yeah, so and that, that's just a, a good reminder in, in all areas of pastoral work and probably in, in all areas of life. Um, it's kind of the principle that's espoused in Acts of the Apostles by, um, oh, I forget who says this. Uh, actually, no. Well, I, I ought to have looked up this quote. I don't remember where it's from. <laughs> One of the, the priests of the people, the Jewish people, you know, says to the council of the other priests about this new Christian movement. It says, well, if it's of God, then it will endure and prosper. And if it's not of God, it will die out on of its own accord. So um, we, we don't want to be opposing God, basically. So let's just wait and see what happens with this whole Christian thing. And if God's behind it, it'll grow. And if not, it'll wither on the vine. And that's such a good surrendered perspective to have of any of our projects. You know, it doesn't mean we don't put in the work. Yes, we plan. Yes, we, we uh, are mission-oriented and we work towards the goal. But ultimately, we recognize that we plant the seed and water, but God gives the growth. So that was a good lesson that uh, was shared with me last Saturday. But keep praying. Keep praying for the Lord to give the growth, please. If this is his will, we, we want it to work out here at St. Mary's. All right, enough about that. Let's talk a little bit about Shakespeare. All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely play it. All right, so last night I completed the very last Shakespeare play that I'm going to read before we start Lord of the Rings next week. Now, there's four plays left for me that I'm going to read uh, in April and the beginning of May, but that's, you know, that's ages away. So <laughs> this is the last Shakespeare for a while, which is 
pretty exciting and kind of strange. Like, I'm not sure what it will feel like to no longer be reading Shakespeare every day. <laughs> I'll probably miss it. But last night, I, I finished Macbeth. Now, this, of course, is a play I've read before. This is an iconic Shakespeare play. I mean, one of his most famous um, and one of his greatest works. Macbeth, well, I'm not going to get into the whole plot. I mean, I think this, this is a well-enough-known play. I don't really need to explain it. If you haven't read it or seen a production of Macbeth, then I just really recommend that you check it out because it's, it's masterful. And yet, I should warn you going in, this is not a... This is not a, 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 an, an easy play. I mean, this is not a, a light-hearted play. It is a tragedy, right? And there was a wonderful quote I read in my commentary, The Meaning of Shakespeare, which I was looking over last night. I want to share this quote with you. So the author says, Tragedy has to do with men possessing the capacity to become gods, who momentarily, at least, become devils. Now, isn't that striking? So, and, and, and this, this he proposes as the shape of all tragedy, of all classical tragedy, that man, hum, human beings who have the potential to become something so great, so noble, instead sweep on this downward trajectory and become, some, become devils. They become something worse than beasts, something subhuman, something, yeah, lower than mere animals, something more awful, more horrible, that their nature becomes so degraded. And I'm reminded here of a saying of C.S. Lewis, which I've quoted on the podcast before, and I don't don't have the exact quote here, but it's to this effect, that that we never meet an ordinary human being. You know, every human being you meet is someone who has the potential to one day become a being so luminous and so grand and, and, and magnificent that you would, if you saw him like that, now you'd be tempted to worship him. Or he has the potential to become a being so horrible, so so awful to behold, that you would cower in terror if you were to behold him. This is the, the grandeur of our human destinies, the shape, the sweep of our futures. And of course, we know all of our decisions bear an eternal weight, right? And so this is the, uh, this is the, the terrible grandeur of the gift of free will, <laughs> that we have the power to choose our eternal destinies. And we're constantly moving either toward heaven or hell, towards glory or degradation and damnation. And so this is, this is the story of Macbeth. And Macbeth, in a way, is all of us. Uh, he's an unlikely protagonist. And I say protagonist loosely. I mean, he's the main character of the play. But, um, you know, he, he's a character who is... Uh, tempted in a way by fate who is um yeah he's swayed by exterior signs and circumstances and promptings to commit great evil and we see over the course of the play how a character who in the beginning is introduced as a a gentleman and a valiant soldier um although we can already sort of see the seeds of savagery in him from the first act when this sergeant is reporting how macbeth right, disembowels this traitor to the King Duncan. So we can see already he he has the potential in him to become something awful, to become a a, a devil, really, right, to become someone um, unbearably horrible. And yet, 
we see in the beginning, he's conflicted and, and in him there's also nobility of spirit. But he gives in to the temptations to do evil in order to amass power. And therefore, uh, by the end of the play, we see the result that it has on him. He's become something less than a man, far less than what he was. And so there's something, there's a, there's a certain uh, similarity, a certain sympathy between Macbeth and Hamlet, which I think is worth teasing out a little bit. Now, they're quite different characters in some ways. Hamlet, um, though, is, is a likelier protagonist. and he's, he's, he's a more um, identifiable protagonist than Macbeth, perhaps. We see in Hamlet certainly the conflict, right? The conflict between, on the one hand, there's the, the mission given him by the ghost of his father, the king, to avenge his murder. And Hamlet, who is uh, tempted to murder, to revenge. He ultimately does kill Polonius, and then he ends up killing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And so he, he, we can see in Hamlet already this sort of degradation of his character, where in the beginning he's so torn and, and he resists. You know, there's that famous scene where he resists killing Claudius when he sees him at prayer. But on the other hand, we do see in Hamlet this progression, this degradation of soul, where by the end of the play, when he sends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to their deaths, he do, the, these friends of his from school, he does this seemingly without a thought. It's, it's a cold act of murder. And there's the famous quote from Hamlet where he says, Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. And we see in that moment, perhaps, a certain decisiveness, a certain turn towards evil. But it's significant, I think, that he says there precisely, My thoughts be bloody, not my deeds. Now, he does go on to do bloody deeds, and bloody thoughts are the seed of bloody deeds, to be sure. But Hamlet is, it, Hamlet is when we think of Hamlet, we think primarily of his thoughts <laughs> and his internal wrestling. He's such a psychologically complex character. And we see his nobility wrestling with the baser uh, urges of his nature. These unconscious, these bloody thoughts, right? These deeper urges. Well, with Macbeth, I think we think primarily of his bloody deeds. And we see in him, he doesn't have the same... Certainly he's conflicted, but not to the same degree as Hamlet. Macbeth, when he resolves to, uh, you know, follow through upon his, his, his resolve to kill Duncan and ultimately to kill many others, Banquo and the Macduffs, his words are, from this moment, the very firstlings of my heart shall be the firstlings of my hand. In other words, what I desire to do in my heart, I will immediately put into action. I will immediately enact. Now, this is something bestial, isn't it? The mark of man is reason, right? And uh, the Aristotelian tradition of philosophy teaches us that uh, reason must rule over the passions. Now, that's, that's not to say that man is supposed to be cold and calculating, but the virtuous man, a virtuous human being, is one who has habits of action which are ruled by right reason. And so our actions are ordered toward a purpose. So our uh, intellect, you know, recognizes something that is good, it informs the will. The will chooses, yes, I will do what is good. I will act towards this good. And therefore, the actions of the whole person are ordered toward the good, right? And that's virtue. What Macbeth is resolving here is essentially irrational. He's saying, 
I will follow the promptings of my heart, be they ever so dark, in order to attain the power that I believe is open to me, that is set before me, right? In order to attain the fate that the witches have proposed to me. And we see the result in Macbeth is the, this atrophy of his soul. There's a wonderful quote, well, really a terrible, a terrible, terrible <laughs> quote from him at the end of the play in Act 5. When he hears the shrieking of women, you know, and this is, um, his castle is being besieged and the, the, the uh, Scottish loyalists, you know, are rising up against him. And presumably these, we don't know who they are, but these women are suffering something uh, as, as the, you know, the, the, as war comes to Dunsinane. And Macbeth reflects with great melancholy, we imagine. He says, the time has been my senses would have cooled to hear a night shriek. And my fell of hair would at a dismal treatise rouse and stir as life were in it. In other words, there was a time he would have been frightened and his hair would have stood on end to hear these sort of sounds, this lamenting, this shrieking. But now, now he's numb to it. His senses are dull and dead inside. He's numb. And we see ultimately the torment which comes upon Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, who are fittingly memorialized as this butcher and his fiend-like spouse. Um, Macbeth, you know, he, he, he becomes utterly irrational in the end of the play. And he's, he's sort of beside it. You know, one moment he's putting on his armor, the next moment he's taking it off. He's, he has these violent outbursts, this anger. Um, and then these periods of deep melancholy and grief. Ultimately, Yes, he fights Macduff and he throws himself into the battle, um, but it's it's a fight of desperation, and he he ultimately it's and it's really it's really suicide. I mean, he knows he's not going to win based on his final understanding of the witch's prophecy. You know, fear no man, but he who uh, fear no man born of woman, they will do no harm to you. Well, he learns that Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped, right? So he goes into the battle knowing it's hopeless, feeling the despair. He fights with all he's got, but he knows he's going to lose. And so in that sense, it's, it's an act of suicide. It's an act of going uh, madly, angrily into that black night of death. And we see also with Lady Macbeth that for these two who've committed such crimes, there's no longer any rest. Their souls are, are, will no longer know rest as long as they walk upon the earth or indeed in eternity. Macbeth, uh, Lady Macbeth can't sleep and she, she sleepwalks and she's constantly scrubbing her hands trying to remove the stain of the blood. She keeps a light by her at all hours, right? She commands the servants to keep the candles burning because she's afraid of what she'll encounter in the dark. And ultimately she too dies, it's implied, by an act of suicide by her own hand. So Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, I mean, this, this is the great, their great tragedy. Now, Lady Macbeth is, I think, a more, somewhat a more pathetic, but a less tragic figure than Macbeth himself. She doesn't, in the beginning, seem to see the full effect, the full horror of their sin, does she? She has that quote where she says to Macbeth, you know, a little water clears us of this deed, right? A little water will wash the blood away. And ultimately, of course, she comes to realize her folly as she scrubs and scrubs at her hands and the blood will not fade from her imagination. 
But it seems in the beginning she doesn't really grasp the way Macbeth does, the existential horror of the murder they're about to commit. So she says a little water will cleanse us of this deed. Macbeth, on the other hand, says, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the great green one red. So Macbeth, in, judging by the definition of tragedy given in that commentary, Macbeth is like the ultimate tragic figure because he sees the full horror, he sees the truth of the sin that he commits, and yet he allows himself to be swayed, to be tempted, and he does it. He chooses, he commits. And that's the ultimate degradation of the soul, isn't it? And haven't we all been there? Not uh, to the level of murder, I hope, for anyone listening to this podcast. But in our own ways, our own lesser ways. Haven't we all been Macbeth? We see the horror of sin, you know. And nonetheless, we choose it. And we see the irrationality and the madness into which it drags us. Fortunately, though, for all of us, there's hope of redemption. And that this is the great gift that the Lord gives to us, that He promises to us. The possibility of salvation, of redemption. That even though our soul be ever so degraded and atrophied, there still remains the possibility of repentance and of life-giving grace which restores us, which restores our innocence, really, and which restores the rest which has become foreign to us. He gives us back the peace of soul which we thought we had lost. Interesting thing, and I can't possibly get into all the the nuances of this play. I could spend an hour talking about it, but my 15 minutes are almost up. (laughs) So I'll cut this a bit short. But um, worth pondering are the witches in this play. And and what are the role that the witches play? (laughs) Pun unintended. Um, You know, so sometimes they're interpreted as the three fates, you know, these three women of Greek mythology who sort of control the fate of the world. But I think the evidence in the play makes clear that's not the case because they speak of, you know, their their masters. They speak of their diabolical spirits who rule over them. So these are these are human beings, these are women who are servants of malignant powers. Nonetheless, the witches are a symbol of kind of these unconscious, these dark, deep forces. Um, beyond our ken or our control, these unseen influences which somehow exert uh, an effect on our behavior, right? And these are, there, there are both diabolical and celestial influences at play, right? The angels and the devils of our nature, so to speak. The, the demons who are the enemies of human nature, the enemies of our salvation, and the angels who wish to assist us and to draw us on to what is noble and good. And so we see with the witches and the diabolical forces they represent, we see that what they promise, what they promise um, on the surface appears good. It appears uh, satisfying, you know, for example, the promise of the kingship to Macbeth, the promise of the kingdom, or, uh, you know, their promise to him that he need fear no man born of woman, or he he need not fear until uh, Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane. Well, on the surface, as he hears them, these seem to speak to him of, um, you know, a a, a secure life of power, free from fear and anxiety. But these are, as they say, Delphic 
utterances, right? They are, they are, they mean the opposite of what they seem to mean. <laughs> and the truth, as we experience it playing out in the play, is that Macbeth, who, who sells his soul in order to achieve these diabolical promises, finds that they were all empty shadow and show. And what seemed so solid and secure is in fact, well, nothing but uh, Im hollow imaginings. And the peace and the security which he thought, and the power which he thought he would buy by his evil acts, in fact, uh, was nothing but a mirage. And what he purchases instead is madness and despair. And yet, and, and I know I'm going a bit over my 15 minutes here, but I really don't want to end on that note. I want to end on this note. <laughs> I think Macbeth ultimately is a hopeful play. Now, you know, Shakespeare loves to hide a little, uh, a little glimpse of the theme of his play, sometimes in the very opening lines. In the first act somewhere, you know, there's a glimpse. And it's often in a, in a seemingly insignificant throwaway line by some minor character. He loves to do this. We've seen it time and time again. So I want to propose to you, act one, scene two, there's this scene with the sergeant who's coming back to speak to Duncan, the king, about the rebellions, you know, and uh, how Macbeth has acquitted himself, right, putting down the rebels. So the sergeant is there. He's bleeding. He's wounded. He's telling this tale. And he brings word that, well, Peace has been achieved of a sort with the rebels. They've been quelled. But now there's fresh war between Scotland and Norway. The Norwegians are uh, attacking the borders. And this is what he says. He says, As whence the sun gins his reflection, shipwracking storms and direful thunders break, so from that spring, whence comfort seems to come, discomfort swells. In other words, in the same way that a storm can come from the east, you know, and think of being at sea and you're expecting a sunrise and instead the storm comes with thunder and lightning bringing you to the brink of shipwreck. Or likewise, uh, as we look forward to spring and the comfort of, of you know, sunnier days and uh, blooming flowers, instead we get uh, a, a recurrence of winter from that spring whence comfort seemed to come, discomfort swells. Well, this prefigures the play because we see in the time of Duncan, you know, it seems that there's peace. Um, the rebels have been quelled. It seems like Scotland is, is going to prosper. And yet there comes this tyrannical and mad reign of Macbeth, the butcher king and his fiend-like bride. And yet consider ultimately how brief this period of uh, tyrannical rule by Macbeth ultimately is. What is, after all, the, the reign of Macbeth but a brief return of winter between the peaceful reigns of Duncan and Malcolm, this great Scottish king? So winter returns for a moment when all Scotland looks forward to the spring, but ultimately it is overcome itself in turn by the coming of spring. For however delayed, spring always wins. And so Macbeth ultimately, I think, is a hopeful play. 
and we see all throughout it these glimmers of hope in, in the good characters and there are minor characters like oh Macduff's young son who's such a, a great character or, or or Malcolm Malcolm himself or King Edward of England you know or or the porter <laughs> this very human you know character who has this long comedic interval pretending he's the porter of hell <laughs> letting in all, all kinds of different souls, right? I mean, we see throughout the play these glimmers of humanity, which reassure us that even in the face of grave inhumanity, right, as, as illustrated by Macbeth, um, he who gives over his soul to evil, nevertheless, there always remains the promise of human beings who will rise to the better angels of our nature. And therefore, and then we can ultimately, you know, take this uh, in the context of eternal salvation, and the, which the Lord has purchased for us. And so we can draw our hope from that. And we know that even in times when evil seems to triumph, it's but a brief reign. Winter, the, the days of winter are always numbered, right? And in the end, the spring will come. The spring will triumph. For me, that's the great lesson of Macbeth. So uh, that's all I have to say about this great play. This last Shakespearean play we'll read for a while. Next week, we'll start with Tolkien. And I think now I want to share with you a little bit from Tolkien's letters this week as we prepare for The Lord of the Rings. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. So I'll have to keep this segment short, but uh, in Tolkien's letters from, let's say, summer 1938 until about February 1939, there's some wonderful little passages, right, where he talks about writing The Lord of the Rings. And especially, I think this is the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, you know, the sequel to The Hobbit. But all these letters to his publisher where he talks about his process of writing The Lord of the Rings, are extremely interesting. So the first one, this is letter 31, and it's back in July 1938. Here he's complaining about how The Hobbit was never intended to have a sequel. (laughs) Of course, it was a standalone children's book. You know, he wrote primarily for his son, Christopher. So he says, he's giving all his reasons why a sequel seems so impossible. He says... For the for the first reason, The Hobbit ended with this line that Bilbo remained very happy to the end of his days, and those were extraordinarily long. And Tolkien says, this is a sentence I find an almost insuperable obstacle to a satisfactory link. <laughs> Which makes sense. And furthermore, he adds, nearly all the motives that I can use were packed into the original book, so that a sequel will appear either thinner or merely repetitional. And for a third, I am personally immensely amused by hobbits as such, and can contemplate them eating and making their rather fatuous jokes indefinitely. But I find this is not the case with even my most devoted fans. Mr. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, of course, says hobbits are only amusing when in unhobbit-like situations. <laughs> Which uh, I think I would tend to agree with. That's, that's the primary charm of hobbits, is putting them in places where they don't belong. <laughs> And so these are all his problems with trying to write a sequel to The Hobbit. Nevertheless, though, he, he begins laboring away at it. And by the end of August, he writes this in a letter to his publisher. This is now letter 33. 
So he's he's um, he's had some vacation. Well, he, he's been very ill, and I think his son was ill. And so they go away for a little while for the sake of their health. And while they're away, he says, In the last two or three days after the benefit of idleness and open air and the sanctions neglect of duty, I have begun again on the sequel to The Hobbit, The Lord of the Ring. So we see in the beginning it was just the one ring. <laughs> it is now flowing along and getting quite out of hand. It has reached about chapter 7 and progresses towards quite unforeseen goals. I must say I think it is a good deal better in places, in some ways, than the predecessor. But that does not say that I think it either more suitable or more adapted for its audience. For one thing, it is, like my own children, rather older. I can only say that Mr. Lewis professes himself more than pleased. But it is no bedtime story. So we can see here the Lord of the Rings. He, well, he says it's getting quite out of hand, which I appreciate. And in the next letter, he explains himself. He says, when I spoke in an earlier letter of this sequel getting out of hand, I did not mean it to be complimentary to the process. I really meant it was running its course and forgetting children and was becoming more terrifying than The Hobbit. It may prove quite unsuitable. It is more adult, but my own children who criticize it as it appears are now older as well. However, you will be the judge of that, I hope, someday. The darkness of the present days has had some effect on it. Now that's very interesting, and, and, and a fact commonly remarked upon, I think, by Tolkien commentators, because, of course, he's writing here during the Second World War, and he concludes, um, though it is not an allegory, he says in no uncertain terms, and he adds parenthetically, I have already had one letter from America asking for an authoritative exposition of the allegory of the Hobbit. <laughs> so Tolkien had a, a very serious distaste for allegory. This was a major point of contention with C.S. Lewis. Of course, Lewis wrote beautiful allegories in Narnia and the Space Trilogy. But Tolkien was always of the opinion that, I believe, the role of a writer is to be a sub-creator. You know, he felt allegory was a bit too obvious, a bit too, a bit too precious, you know. And in, in an allegory, you know, A, uh, a stands for A prime, B stands for B prime. In other words, one character or one setting or one thing in the story stands precisely for one person or one thing or one place in the analogate, you know. And so it's like in the parables of Jesus, where some of the parables, where like in, this, in the parable of the sower, Jesus says, well, the seed that falls on the rocky ground stands for this kind of soul or that kind of soul. That's an allegory. But what Tolkien wants to do is actually create another world. I mean, truly create a whole world with its own stories and its, its, own, its own sort of history and its own languages and its own its own uh, mythos and its own sort of everything, everything self-contained. And yet a world which is fantasy, but which also is true in a certain way. And this is Tolkien's insight. That if you, if you sub-create, you know, you're, you're creating in harmony with the creator, with God, you create your own sort of kingdom in literature or in art, then it will all on its own, preach the gospel. <laughs> it will all on its own reflect the light of, of truth. And so even in, in a world which is, it's not consciously or intentionally an allegory, nevertheless, the truth will shine through. The truth will shine through it. And don't we find that to be the case in Tolkien, in Middle Earth? Uh, the Middle Earth, is, Middle Earth is like, 
it's it's almost it's another world in which we could say with Hopkins the world is all charged with the grandeur of God. It's unfamiliar to us. It's a foreign land, and yet deep down it is familiar to us because we encounter goodness and truth and nobility and beauty, and all these these aspects of God's grandeur. So in the, in the following letter, I want to just quote this as well. This is letter thirty five. He says again, I think The Lord of the Rings is in itself a good deal better than The Hobbit. <laughs> so his opinion of it is, is improving by the month. But it may not prove a very fit sequel. It is more grown up. But the audience for which The Hobbit was written has done that also. <laughs> so we see here he's still primarily writing for his own children who are getting older. The readers, young and old, who clamored for, quote, more about the necromancer are to blame. For the necromancer is not child's play. Still, there are more hobbits, far more of them, and about them in the new story. Gollum reappears, and Gandalf is to the fore. Dwarves come in, and though there is no dragon so far, there is going to be a giant, and the new and very alarming ring wraiths are a feature. There ought to be things that people who liked the old mixture will find to have a similar taste. My eldest son is enthusiastic, but it would be a relief for me to know that my publishers were satisfied. <laughs> and then he goes on to add, the writing of The Lord of the Rings is laborious, because I have been doing it as well as I know how, and considering every word. The story, too, has, I fondly imagine, some significance. In spare time, it would be easier and quicker to write up the plots already composed of the more light-hearted stories of the Little Kingdom to go with Farmer Giles, which is another little short story he wrote that we'll be reading later this year. But, he says, I would rather finish the long tale and not let it go cold. So we see here, I think, it's beginning to dawn on Tolkien the significance of the Lord of the Rings. And we remember his letters, you know, to his friends in the TCBS, this tea society, this tea club and Barovian society, um, which we, we read a few weeks ago, where he talks about, you know, kind of their vocation to be great, to do something great, like to, to, to speak truth to the world, to remind the world of a truth that's forgotten. And maybe he's beginning to realize now that the Lord of the Rings, this is a story with some significance. This is a story which is going to somehow speak this almost forgotten truth into the midst of his present world, so darkened by war and by brutality. And uh, of course, this is the point that that new commentary in part I mentioned, Tolkien's modern uh, reading or something like that, <laughs> I mentioned it last week, Part of the point that this, this academic author was making, right, is that Tolkien is, was not just a, a, you know, sort of reactionary who was dwelling in the Middle Ages in his mind and not engaged with the world around him. No, he's deeply engaged. And he wants to propose to the world around him, which is so dark and so filled with suffering and despair, uh, a, 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 an image, a vision of life as it might yet be and as it was meant to be. And I think he's beginning to see here in these letters to the publisher, we get glimpses that he's beginning to realize just how important this Lord of the Rings might be. Although at the moment, it's still a side project for him. This is going to become his life's work, his masterpiece. So I'm excited to begin reading it along with you. We'll start on Monday, February 8th. If you want to read along with me, you can go to inyourembrace.com slash Tolkien. You'll get the whole reading plan there. And next week, I will dive in with you into the first part of The Fellowship of the Ring. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? 
A saint means one who is holy. Well, as promised, we'll conclude the podcast here with a few words about St. Titus, the saint who we celebrate today in the traditional Roman calendar. Now, in the revised calendar, uh, Saints Timothy and Titus are celebrated on the same day. In the traditional calendar, they have their own individual feasts. Of course, these two saints are very closely related, two companions of St. Paul. Um, And yet, it seems from what I've read, and even perhaps from the letters that St. Paul writes to them in the New Testament, that uh, St. Timothy and Titus are very different people and uh, different in their relationships with the Holy Apostle Paul as well. You know, St. Timothy is, uh, you will remember if you listened to the podcast episode, gosh, was it last year that I talked about St. Timothy? Uh, If you remember, you know, when St. Paul first met met him on his first missionary journey, uh, I believe in Lystra, um, Timothy was a young lad. He was probably a teenager or something and uh, part of this, you know, well-respected family in the Jewish community. And when Paul returned, he found that uh, that uh, the family had converted and that uh, Timothy was now a well-respected and, and uh, mature young man, a young adult in the Christian community. And he invited him to accompany him on his journeys. So St. Timothy very much became a kind of an apprentice of St. Paul. And you can see that fatherly affection that Paul has for, for him in his letters, uh, calling him my dear child, my beloved son, you know, and, and giving him fatherly exhortation and encouragement to, to uh, live up to his high calling as a bishop. You know, he was made bishop of Ephesus and ultimately suffered martyrdom there. But it's not St. Timothy's feast day, it's St. Titus's feast day. Now, St. Titus apparently was already a kind of a mature a Christian leader, by the time St. Paul called him to ministry, he was made Bishop of Crete. And we read about that in the beginning of the letter of Paul to Titus. In verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders, uh, which, of course, in Greek, uh, presbyters, presbyteroi, so priests, and appoint priests in every town as I directed you. If any man is blameless, The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of being profligate or insubordinate. So Titus's job as the bishop in Crete was to appoint priests throughout the towns of the various islands, you know, and sort of to build up the church there and make it a stable institution. St. Paul goes on to describe various aspects, you know, the qualities that a bishop must have and that a priest must have and, you know, how to to, uh, get along amongst the Cretans. One of themselves, this is verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, instead of giving heed to Jewish myths or to commands of men who reject the truth. He urges Titus to teach sound doctrine, to uh, maintain good deeds, to exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. It's a very pastoral, practical letter, very short letter. It's about three and a half pages in my Revised Standard Version. So I recommend you check out the letter to Titus if you've never read it. But about Titus, uh, to, to return to his life story, unfortunately, not terribly much is known about him. We do know that he was born a Gentile and seems to have been converted by St. Paul. And this is what the uh, Butler's Lives of the Saints 
which is a tremendous, tremendously good resource for learning about the saints. This is what Butler has to say. St. Titus, uh, his extraordinary virtue and merit gained him the particular esteem and affection of this apostle. For we find him employed as his secretary and interpreter, and he styles him his brother and co-partner in his labors, commends exceedingly his, solitude, his solicitude excuse me, and zeal for the salvation of his brethren, and in the tenderest manner expresses the comfort and support he found in him. So whereas Timothy was more of a kind of a son to St. Paul, spiritual son, we, we, find, we learn that Titus was kind of a spiritual brother. And that, the, that uh, well, at least we learn from St. Paul that he found in St. Titus uh, a source of consolation and encouragement. And he found in him someone who was sort of equal to his, his own apostolic zeal, right? And what a gift it is to have a friend who is uh, of the same mind as yourself and possesses, you know, a, a similar quality or even greater zeal than you have for the same things, the same mission, and uh, therefore can spur you on. You, you can uh, spur each other on to greater heights, to greater achievements. And if one becomes discouraged, the other can encourage you. It's a great gift to have a spiritual friendship. And this is apparently what St. Paul shared with St. Titus. So he was appointed at Crete to preach the faith of Jesus Christ, to establish the priesthood there, and to build up the church. St. John Chrysostom says, We may form a judgment from the importance of this charge, how great the esteem of St. Paul was for his disciple. And then ultimately, uh, well, St. Titus was called, we read in the letter of St. Paul to Titus, that he called him to come away and meet him at Nicopolis. But ultimately, St. Titus returned back to Crete and eventually died there. And uh, Butler says, All that can be affirmed further of him is that he finished a laborious and holy life by a happy death in Crete in a very advanced old age, some affirm in the 94th year of his age. And his relics are kept in various places around Europe, <laughs> as is very often the case with uh, ancient or medieval saints. They kind of end up scattered all over the place. So, St. Titus, I would like to share with you now the sort of final um, summary paragraph from his entry in Butler's Lives of the Saints. Uh, I've shared some of these before for various feast days, and you'll find if you read in this wonderful book, on the feasts of important saints, very often this author, Butler, will sort of sum up the life of the saint in almost a little mini-homily, in words that are um, encouraging to us and exhort us to follow his example. And this is what he says about St. Titus. When St. Paul assumed Titus to the ministry, this disciple was already a saint. And the apostle found in him all the conditions which he charged him so severely to require in those whom he should honor with the pastoral charge. It is an illusion of false zeal and a temptation of the enemy for young novices to begin to teach before they have learned themselves how to practice. Young birds which leave their nests before they are able to fly are sure to perish and trees which push forth their buds before the season yield no fruit, the flowers being either nipped by the frost or destroyed by the sun. So those who give themselves up to the exterior employments of the ministry, before they are thoroughly grounded in the spirit of the gospel, drain their tender interior virtue, and produce only unclean or tainted fruit. All who undertake the pastoral charge, Besides a thorough acquaintance with the divine law 
and the maxims and spirit of the gospel, and experience, discretion, and a knowledge of the heart of man, or his passions, must have seriously endeavored to die to themselves by the habitual practice of self-denial and a rooted humility, and must have been so well exercised in holy contemplation as to retain that habitual disposition of soul amidst exterior employments, and in them to be able to still say, I sleep, and my heart keeps watch. That is, I sleep to all earthly things, and am awake only to my heavenly friend and spouse, being absorbed in the thoughts and desires of his most ardent love. What a beautiful exhortation for all of us who are called to pastoral ministry. It's sobering, too, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, I, I can't say of myself that I possess all the qualities that St. Paul says to Titus that the, that the priest, still less the bishop, must possess. But uh, we can be at peace knowing that the Lord, the Lord who calls us also will justify us. And he brings about in us, with our cooperation, of course, and um, in, a, in a measure corresponding to our cooperation with grace, he will bring about in us uh, the fullness of virtue and all that is necessary to live our state in life well, to live our vocations well, and to be satisfied ourselves, for our vocation is for our fulfillment and our joy, as well as for the good of the church and of the world. And so we can pray to St. Titus to uh, embody ourselves in our lives, all the virtues that St. Paul says to him, that the that the priest or the bishop must have. These are simply good virtues for all Christians to have. Um, to be blameless, uh, not to be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of goodness, master of himself, upright, holy, and self-controlled. He must hold firm to the sure word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict it. So I will leave you with that. We will ask St. Titus to pray for us today on this, his feast day, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And my friends, I thank you once again for another podcast. I'm pleased to be able to say I kept this one under an hour. Praise be Jesus Christ. (laughs) I wish you a wonderful rest of your weekend. May God bless you protect you from all evil and bring you to everlasting life. Amen.